and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. James Bond is on assignment this week, so I'm your filling host, James Page, from mi6hq.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential. This week, we are going to be talking about how each actor ended their tenures. So we're going to be looking back at how each of the actors' last films came about. How did the end of their journeys differ? Who came out looking good? Um, do we see them differently now, knowing it was their last one? Um, so to ponder these questions and more, I am joined by Ben, Phil, Dr. Lisa, Paul, and joining us for the first time, Natalie Bahensky. And would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Yeah. Hi, uh, everybody. I'm Ben Williams. I write for MI6HQ.com and MI6 Confidential Magazine. This is Phil Nobile Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine, and uh, just mouthing off on about Bond on Twitter on The Daily. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm a university professor, award-winning author, and podcaster specializing in gender in James Bond and other action films. I'm Paul Atkinson. I'm the backup backup host, and I'm one of the co-founders <laughs> of MI6. And I apparently am Natalie Bohensky with a resume absolutely nowhere near as impressive as all of those. <laughs> Welcome, Natalie. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Natalie, we had a running joke that uh, yeah, Lisa had to dial her uh, her introduction back by like several like paragraphs just because he was just, I couldn't follow her. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm intimidated now. The pre-podcast chat was all laughs and smiles, and now I'm like, oh my god, these people are all professionals. Thunderdome now, baby. <laughs> <laughs> So Natalie, for our listeners, would you like to introduce yourself about like your Bond journey, how you got started on Bond, and um, yes, and what you've been up to with your blog and podcast during lockdown? Of course. So I am uh, based in Brisbane, Australia. I'm a journalist by trade, but in more recent years, I have left that world behind to attempt the incredibly lucrative career of a an independent arts producer and theatre writer performer director, producer, all of those kinds of things. It's incredibly lucrative, as I'm sure you'll understand, particularly in a global (laughs) pandemic. Uh, So I have always been a James Bond fan. I remember my parents putting it on, particularly my dad loving it, and it was always in Australia uh, one of those film series that often would be, you know, Friday night movie or Saturday night movie. This is obviously before we had multiple streaming services and all that sort of stuff. So uh, the James Bond films were kind of a regular fun family film. Maybe in hindsight, they shouldn't be. I don't know, but I love them and uh, I continued to love them. And when GoldenEye came out, that was my first Bond in the cinema experience, which dates me probably as very old. Um, And I've seen everyone in the cinema since. You're in good company with that one. Oh, oh. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was oh, what a great day that was when Gold and I came out. Still one of my favourite Bond films. But uh, so I have always loved them. I've always defended them. I've always stuck up for them. I've I'm I consider myself a very strong feminist. I still love Bond movies. I see the two existing very happily together. And uh, <laughs> maybe Dr. Lisa will have a, a disagreement with me on that. No, no, no. I'm a hundred percent like. Fist pumping in the air because oh, I, I get asked that all the time. How can you be a feminist and a woman and like Bond? And I'm like, it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> so keep uh, going. You're good. <laughs> it is. It is one of the the misunderstood things about Bond is that all the girls are oh James, and it's really only a very few of them 
who mm-hmm. are like that. And yes, there there are the egregious cases uh, <coughs> of you to a kill. But um, <laughs> hey, now we were getting on so well. This is going so good. <laughs> I still have a soft spot for it, but it it does have some of the the more oh Jamesy moments of the franchise, mm, mm. Um, and yeah. So I'm I'm just a, a massive fan. Um, I must admit, though, I was slightly disappointed by Spectre, um, by some sort of key aspects <laughs> of Spectre, which I don't know how that will go down with you guys, but I'm sure we can talk about it if, if Did needs to be. Did you read a glowing review of well, it? Well, Ben loved it. <laughs> <laughs> you can read Ben's review. Um, he loved oh, it. Oh my God. <laughs> I, wrote, uh, I, I wrote a nice review of it. I kind of changed my mind. Anyway, Mr. Yeah. Fins, you can't get invited to the the screening and then write a shit review of it. Wait, hold on. Oh, <laughs> look, if you yeah. got invited to the screening, absolutely, I'd be saying it's it's a it's a million, you know, it's a million bucks worth. Wait, no, a billion bucks worth. Yeah, <laughs> can't well, film a Bond film for a million bucks anymore. Cost versus <laughs> value, though, Ren. Uh, yeah. Look, and it's. So the the most recent thing, uh, the most recent Bond project that I have worked on was during the lockdown. Uh, my podcast buddy Stuart Late and I, we've been podcasting together for about five years. We started podcasting about Game of Thrones because I'm also a massive Game of Thrones nerd. TV show again, uh, not so much the the kind of books or the extended universe, but um, I became super super obsessed with Game of Thrones. I started writing recaps and uh, for the digital paper that I worked for at the time as a journalist and they became super popular in Australia, which was amazing. And so when Game of Thrones ended, we decided to keep podcasting about various other pop culture things. And when the pandemic hit, we decided to do a James Bond project. So we called it, uh, our podcast was normally Raven On because it's a Game of Thrones <laughs> fun. And uh, then we turned it into Raven Bond for a year. So we've podcasted, a, we, we rewatched all of the movies um, in order we included Never Say Never Again, even though I was not. Mm. Yeah, man, it, it, yeah. Look, it was it was part of the examination of the the mm. you know the the two Bond year and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, so I've done recaps, accompanying recaps for all of those podcasts except the Craig ones because things started. We we finished the series and lockdown started to lift. Uh, where we are in, in Queensland, and so I had to start doing other things. So I haven't finished the Craig recaps yet, but if you do want to read any of my recaps, uh, nataliebohensky.com. Bohensky is spelt B-O-C-H-E-N-S-K-I, and you can read my recaps all there um, except for the Craigs, which I will finish one day. And there's a lot of, I, you know, I thought I got did nothing during lockdown year because I, I write plays and all that sort of stuff. I kind of came out going, I have not done nothing this year. I should have used this time wisely. I should have written shows. And then I remember I wrote probably 100,000 words on the Bond franchise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're good words too. Uh, I, I'm just going to just chime in and just say um, I stumbled across your your blog and I found it you know, extremely funny, extremely insightful, uh, you know, very witty, um, some, some great stuff in there. So I do recommend to everybody to go and check. Oh, thank you so much. That's awesome. I had, I had a lot of fun writing them as well. We normally do these things chronologically, um, but looking at the actors and how they finish their tenures is a little bit tricky when we start with Connery because we first have to define what we consider his final film to be. Yeah, I I, right. I I put both titles down in my notes. I was like, diamonds? Question mark. Never say never again. Question mark. Um, <laughs> oh, I do and live twice. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as well. So there is. Yeah, wow. I mean, you can put you can put twice in there as well. I guess. Jesus, I'm not very good at this, am I? 
<laughs> Just write the well, word. When you mentioned the topic to me, um, I thought to myself, oh, that would be interesting because most of them didn't actually decide to leave. So pretty much mm -hmm. Roger Moore was the only one that actually knowingly made A View to Kill as his last Bond film. Everyone else, maybe Daniel Craig, <laughs> is going to have the opportunity to bow out. The rest of them kind of either just sort of hit the pause button, <laughs> in Connery's case, or uh, think, had well, things yeah. happen to them. So I think Connery's an interesting hybrid example where he did deliberately decide to leave and then regretted it. Yeah. I mean, uh, also, that I think, you know, just coming back on Paul's uh, point just for one second about more is, you know, there was that whole thing with Fioris only as well, where he was basically like renegotiating um, on a film by film basis by that point. And I think that, you know, there was, you know, looking at the film and, um, and all the stories that we know, I mean, there was maybe quite a lot to say that that could have been his last film. Can right. I put in sort of my argument that I think all three can be connected to each other, like a little bit like if you're going to skip a rock. And I feel as though he was just very uh, unhappy and grumpy at the end of You Only Live Twice. And then he comes back more refreshed um, in, in Diamonds Are Forever. And then we see him come back in, oh, what is this? What is the movie's name? It's out of my brain. Uh, never the, say never again. Never say never again. Oh my gosh. Never say, <laughs> it's, it, I need more coffee. Never say never again. And he seems even more revitalized where he looks, you know, he feel he looks more like himself and he's tanned and he's taking command of, of the missions. And so I do feel as though we get this interesting phenomenon of him going from like grumpy pants to <laughs> like, just feeling like, Ooh, look, I can still do this. Here's my one more. And then, you know, having one where he has more creative control and where he uh, is coming back because he really wants to come back. I feel as though these are connected in, in my mind as sort of like an elevation in terms of, of his performance, um, his trilogy, his exit trilogy. Let's uh, I'll look at I, it in that way. I, directly correlated with how much he's screwing over Cubby. I was just about to say, <laughs> it, it is basically the, the, is. The, the, the middle finger is slowly winding up. Uh, for his last three films. And the last one is just him, you know, literally flipping the bird. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, he is miserable at the end of Twice, but di uh, with, with Diamonds for Forever, you, you've got him with his, you know, uh, million-dollar um, payday and his three films that he can then go on and, and do with UA. Um, and then by Never Say Never Again, he really is, you know, flipping the finger at, um, you know, at Eon and by saying... You know, okay, you're putting out a movie at the moment. Me too. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that Paul's right. It does directly correlate his happiness to, <laughs> to, to you know, to how much but he they, can. They're they're different in that. So think of this. There's think of a meter. Imagine a meter, and on that meter is like the how much does that person have left to prove? And 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 Connery has nothing left to prove by you only live twice and he really has nothing left to prove by diamonds are forever. But there's, there's these things sort of gnawing at him in terms of his, his, uh, his contract and you only live twice. And in diamonds, there's this energy of, he's like this asshole uncle that you had to invite to the wedding. Like he, <laughs> he's there. Nobody really wants him there, but he's like, fuck you. I'm here. Um, but there's a weird kind of, um, darkness in between the lines there that isn't mm. there and never say never again. And I think that's what Lisa's responding to and never say never again so much is that there's a lightness uh, mm -hmm. to his presence. He has nothing to prove and he doesn't need to be doing it. He's there because he wants to be there. Yeah. Um, 
there's an energy to that that I know that hardcore Bond fans dismiss Never Seen Never Again. But that energy, I think I'm aligned with Lisa in terms of like being drawn to that energy. Like that's the that's the vibe you want on your way out the door. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I actually like it as a movie. So. Do you think uh, that it might have something to do with that phenomenon where some actors become famous playing a very specific role, and that's who they become indelibly linked to in their career. And often there's a backlash against feeling like that's them, that's their role, and you get the I want to do other things, I want to explore other projects, I want to, and then maybe 10 years later, maybe 15, maybe 20, all of a sudden, yeah, I could do that character again. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about, uh, I think, is it uh, Spock? I'm not a massive Star Trek person, so forgive me. I am not Spock. He wrote a book called I am not Spock, yeah. Yeah, so he sort of tried to distance himself a bit from the character for a little while and then eventually by the time you get older and you're like, you know what, that's what I became famous for. Eh, embrace it. Go to the conventions. And and he has that in common with Connery and Shatner where they all spent the 70s running their careers into the ground. Uh, (laughs) So that at the end of the decade, they're like, yeah, we can play this character again. But then you you sort of come out of it again (laughs) as you you come out of it as, you know, the kind of the great elder statesman of, you know, of of the pop culture world. Return of the King. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just, I wonder how much, because the thing is about Connery is obviously he was, you know, as, as Lisa said, a grump, I think probably all of his life and, uh, had, you know, maybe a chip on his shoulder about some things. And, and certainly I, I can't see him being as, um, happy about Bond as others, but maybe he sort of just relaxed a bit and got over himself a bit being out of the spotlight as, as Bond. Cause it would have been a huge, you know, uh, you know that that what was it the 1960s was kind of Beetle and Bond in terms of mm. great British exports. Um, mm. So it would it would have been a massive invasion of of his whole life. Yeah. Um, and so maybe to have a decade kind of out of it, and then, and then to or even even just a few years out of it before coming back for Diamonds Are Forever, um, yeah. where he clearly was just having a ball, like you know, or or even put doing it on autopilot. Yeah, you know, just going. Yeah, I can swim through this. This is fine. And then by never say never again, having more of that, like, ah, let's give this one, one last t- drive around the block. And I think that's true, Natalie. It, it's and also I think there's um, an element, and we talked about this when we did the pop. I, I think when we did the the watch along for it, that you know he's got a lot more creative control uh, in in that movie, um, and. I think you know, like the, 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 although McClory was kind of producing, I think um, Connery brought a lot of clout to it that you, you know often superseded some of McClory's decisions. And I think what you end up getting is a guy who's pretty much on holiday. Um, you know, they're going to these great locations; they're just sunning themselves. He's got a great tan, mm. um, and I think he's kind of bringing his friends along and saying, "Yeah, you still have a really." nice time making this this movie that also happens to kind of you know give two fingers to the to these guys so yeah, yeah. And he gets to copiously snog kim bassinger so <laughs> yeah yeah he does copiously and- that's not that, like, the right word continually snog kim bassinger i think you know you can have uh you know there, there isn't a sort of a finite like m- amount of of snoggage you know so i <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you can you can have a copious amount of snogging, so why not? 
do you think that the energy that Connery gives off in Never Say Never Again is comparable to the type of energy and excitement and vigor that he was bringing out in terms of like Dr. No, almost like this notion of like, when you talk about things coming full circle and yes, there's maturity, age, experience, and so forth. But there's also, for me, when I, I'm thinking, because I'm literally looking at like this Dr. No album on my wall as we're talking <laughs> about this and just wondering, you know, he brought a lot of himself into crafting and cultivating this role and interjecting his personality into it and feeling through it. And then it became formulaic. And it's very difficult when somebody places their expectations on you from the outside and who this character is supposed to be with limited flexibility. And then to leave the role not once, but twice and be able to come back with, you know, a different filmmaker and, and a whole bunch of freedom. I feel like there's maybe a comparable energy or connection. Um, and maybe that's why his performance kind of like felt like the first time, right? <laughs> you go back mm. to it. Mm. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if anybody else sort of feels that or saw that, or maybe I'm just staring at this album and this is the idea that's popping in my head. <laughs> well, just, he, Fleming, uh, you know, retconned Bond's history to have a Scottish father because of uh, Sean Connery, as I understand right. it. So Ooh. I guess he would have that ownership and that sense of, no, this is this is me. I did put myself into this character. Mm-hmm. You're damn right I'm going to have fun with it. I'm going to make it my own. I'm going to show everyone again, particularly up against a, a you know, rapidly aging Roger Moore, <laughs> right. who was slightly older. But, yeah, you can sort of put them up against each other and him, him have Connery sort of come out on top every time, I think, with, with that comparison. But, yeah, I... I agree with you, Lisa. I think he definitely would have been having a bit of a, you know, a flashback to those earlier days of energy and exploration and fun. Phil, I think you were going to... Oh, well, I, I was just going to say, so I, I initially bristled at that comment that Lisa made because, you know, the I, I tend to think of Connery and Dr. No as a more dangerous, more unsettled, kind of unpredictable character. Mm. But, you know, when you think about it, there's one that I can think of, one moment in the Bond franchise where Bond sings and and it's in the Dr. No at uh, mm. Laughing Waters in Jamaica. So, and, you know, he's on record as saying he always wanted to bring more humor into it. So mm. I think you, you're seeing maybe in Never Say Never Again, some of the, some of Connery's ideas that he was always pushing for in terms of the, how the character should be presented. But I also think he's leaning into being old. I think he likes playing old Bond. <laughs> like it's a fun thing for him to be the sort of like this kind of jovial or not jovial, but genial uncle Bond. Mm. Well, I, I, I think one of the things when we did our rewatch of Never Say Never Again, just the amount of like like fat shaming and, and body shaming at the <laughs> health clinic, like you're old, <sighs> you're fat, you're, it's, it was really, really struck Your me. Your is toxic. Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it really struck me. And so maybe I've found more affinity with that film as I've gotten older and, and I just want to point out I'm not, as old as Connery was in that picture. I've still got a fair way to go from that yet. I just don't want to date myself uh, as, as too old. But, um, yeah, so I think that, that as you age, maybe different films affect you differently and maybe I had a bit more affinity for his bond in that one because of that sense of they're trying to put me out to pasture or they're, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they don't think I can offer anything because I'm not 25 and taught. Uh, yeah. So there's a, a, a certain energy that comes with that. Um, what's that? Age and experience will defeat youth and um, vigor anytime, something like yeah. that. Which is, which is crazy when they try to do the same sort of thing with Daniel Craig in Skyfall, you know, 
they're trying to be like, it's time to put you out to pasture, and there he is. Yes. It's only his third movie, and the first yeah. two essentially are supposed to be a continuation. So right. he's, so he's really. It's some nebulous time that we never got to see him do all of his other missions uh, until yes. he got until he got too old and and clearly out of shape in that movie. I mean, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like, my so, goal in life is to be as out of shape yes, as him. Yeah. I know, right? You have to focus on his face. He does look yeah. like hell. He looks like hell in Skyfall, and they leaned into it. Connery's coming back, and he's basically redoing one of his old films. Is that like? Mm-hmm. Does that give you a sense of extra confidence because you kind of know what you're you're getting into? Um, Do you think he knew? You made it once already. I think. Uh, can can I can I answer that? Did he notice? I, I, did he really notice? <laughs> I'm I'm kind of make I'm going to kind of answer this in you know both both questions. One, I think that he comes back um, to to never say never again with actually more vigor than I think he had uh, in Doctor No. Um, similarly to Phil, I think he is you know, like saying I, I think he is a kind of a, a a rougher diamond in that that movie, and they still he's still trying to define that that role, even though he's really inhabiting it. Um, but by the time he gets to never say never again, I think he's he he's just kind of like comfortable in a in a nice old pair of slippers. Um, but but to to, to answer uh, Paul's point, which is you know uh, it, it is a remake of Thunderball. Um, I would I would say that Thunderball's tone tonally anyway was always much much lighter. It's got a a, a kind of a almost like a Wicker's World kind of like. Um, you know, it, like we we call it the kind of the chill out vacation movie for Bond, and I think that's fair to say. You know, where they're all just kind of just having fun in the Bahamas. Um, and I think that he's just kind of bringing that same energy to it. You know, that he had when he he did Thunderball. He's like, yeah, this is another opportunity to to chill out in Nassau or or you know Jamaica. <laughs> or whatever. So yeah, and the South of France. Um, so here's a question then um for the casual fan because we all know the movies that they leave on right but for the casual fan do you think the fact that connery knew it was either he was leaving or as a one-off do you think that's visible to the casual fan i think it is never saying ever again like it's like breaks the fourth wall and everything else but for twice and diamonds do you think that's something that stands out compared to the others for the casual viewer (laughs) I think for the casual viewer, it depends on how you view the Bond films because in Australia, um, they, as I mentioned in my preamble, they were often played as kind of Friday night, Saturday night entertainment. So you had this um, phenomenon, I guess, where you would just see Bond movies out of order, mixed up. Um, you'd see certain ones over and over more than others. So I think that if you're just watching based on a kind of a scrambled mishmash of you know, 1980s, 90s TV programming, then you probably wouldn't know. And I think it took me a while to figure out as a kid that Diamonds Are Forever was his last one because they used to play that a lot, which is one of the reasons why I think it's still a bit of a sentimental favourite of mine, even though it's, it's you know, it, it's got some it's weak got elements. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's definitely got problems, but there's yeah. just so many elements about it. I mean, moon buggy um, that that make it really fun for me, but I wouldn't... I wouldn't. It, it took me a while, I think, to work out that "You Only Live Twice" was his actual sort of final film, um, and then he came back for it. So, 
yeah, to the casual viewer, I don't think you would necessarily know because. I think you pick up on his fatigue in uh, twice. You know, I think, you know, there is a. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. If and somebody, if somebody <laughs> said to me, this is this guy's last movie, you could probably go, yeah, he's, he looks a bit over it, to be honest with you. Yes. But, and... <laughs> but, but, less, so, but less so, I think, in, in, in Diamonds and, and um, Never Seen Ever Again. Although I wonder if you, would, you could carbon date him via his toupee. <laughs> well, Bill oh, has a blog about that. <laughs> yes, Bill has a blog. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, uh, that, that charts his, his, his toupee history. Oh. It's close. Fascinating stuff. It's more comprehensive than the um, Bond 25 timeline. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've not seen it myself, but I'm told the footage is excellent. (laughs) I would probably argue the opposite um, about this notion that, like, for the casual viewer, that he looks tired in uh, You Only Live Twice. The only reason why I've ever noticed it is because we talk about it on the podcast. So then with this idea in mind, I go watch these films and I'm looking for it. But I have seen these films and studied these films for years. And I don't think at any point have I sat there being like, I think he's phoning it in. Because I'm always, I'm just so amazed by, you know, the set design. And there's so much stuff going on in the movie. It's just, it's something that is never registered unless I look at it. And unless I start thinking about and reading about and researching the the background of the movie and some of the struggles that were taking place and negotiations. And I think the act, like I, I, Natalie brings up a good, a, a really good point of if you're just sort of watching these mishmash, you know, just regular scrambled uh, titles that come out, you might not be aware of it and you might not have the knowledge of the production and, and, and the background. And especially since this was the 1960s and we didn't have social media at that time where every little detail of production gets, becomes global. It becomes like global talk and global fodder and, and it trends. And so I'm not sure. I I never noticed it until we started talking about it, that he looked labored in any way, shape or form. How, how much of that do you think is due to Connery's central complaint about that kind of movie, which was because of the, the machines around him and the sets around him and everything that Bond got lost anyway. Mm. So... Did oh, his I perform- didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it, it could total, definitely be the point. Total speculation, but I, I wonder also if filming that uh, was a disconnect for him. Think about how they hire internationally, right? And everyone's sort of dubbed and everyone's kind of, you know, doing their best with the English. I, I wonder if that was amplified with, with a cast that was mostly, you know, a Japanese cast. That that the, the the scenes were maybe more difficult to play, or or there was just some something about the back and forth that was harder, or or uh, presented a kind of challenge for him that he maybe just kind of tapped out of at the moment. Mm. That is an interesting point, and 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 you're you're right. I not really considered that before, but you know, it's like when you see actors kind of up against a green screen or something like that, where mm-hmm. you know they're re- they're reacting to things that aren't. Necessarily. Tennis ball on a stick. Yeah, mm. tennis ball on the stick stuff. Yeah. Or, um, but you know, maybe that's the that 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 was the sixties uh, equivalent of, of that. Maybe. And surely, I, yeah. I was moved to think about it when I was watching those OSS one one seven movies because they're they're produced in France, but the lead actor more often than not is American. And if you're watching, it's all dubbed, but the the lead is speaking English. Uh, mm-hmm. and he's, he's dubbed, but all of his 
co-stars are speaking their own native languages. And this is something that happens in spaghetti westerns and, and whatnot too. But mm-hmm. um, I, I want I wonder if that was the first time that Connery had encountered that on on a Bond film, and if it was disorienting or annoying. I, I mean, I'm not saying it should have been annoying, but it, in the moment, it might have been frustrating for him. And also isolating as well. I think he was already an isolated man. That's the word I was looking for. Thank in, you, man. In, in terms of his, his no, sorry, in terms of his, um, uh, you, you know, his fame was very isolating for him. Mm. You know, could, couldn't leave his hotel room and all of the other uh-huh. things, you know, the intrusion into his bathroom. So you're already isolated there, but then you're on set and you're not necessarily having the, um, the same kind of connection with your, uh, your fellow actors. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and, for somebody who hadn't experienced that before, I'm sure that was a, a you know an isolating and alienating experience. And especially when you look at some of the behind the scenes photos from a lot of the other films, like you look at Thunderball, and there's always photos of the cast sitting together, lounging on the beach. It looked like it was a very sort of social type of a set. And I mean, maybe I just haven't come across them, but I haven't really come across them for this particular movie of, of people just sort of going out and, and and having a good time. And I think a lot of that has to do with the celebrity status and a lot of the attention that was put on um, that created this isolation factor. And that it, it, you can be a really great actor, but it's really difficult to have those external factors not bleed into your performance and not mm. impact you on some level with with connecting, whether it's with the camera, with your co-stars, even in the spaces where you're operating. Mm. So what you're saying is it stopped uh, becoming, f- it stopped being fun and started becoming a job. Yeah. Hmm? And the, uh... films, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of relate that to like, um, you know, like the Thor movies. And then you get Taika Waititi coming along and the whole vibe changes because, you know, Terrence Young is probably the Taika Waititi of the, you know, the brave. <laughs> that's a good comparison, of- actually. Yeah. <laughs> that's the first time that's ever been said out loud on the planet Earth, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he's, he kind of creates this, uh, you know, familial kind of comfortable environment on set where, you know, everyone's, you can, and you can see it on the screen. It comes, it comes across that everyone is kind of, um, enjoying themselves and uh whether it's you know that i i think of that scene where fiona picks bond up just after he's uh you know been doing his spying on the disco and they get you know the drive back to the the hotel and it's you know it's got such a sort of lightness and you just kind of like even though that they're, they're supposed to be this whole kind of like this is the femme fatale who is you know tricking him and you just you just get the sense that they're <laughs> they're just good pals hanging out really mm. and you know that that sort of infectiousness kind of comes across uh to the to the audience and i think that you know when you get into doing you know bigger bigger films with bigger directors um you know twice had um you know had a different uh screen the screenwriter as well so you know there's there's certain kind of nuances about the character that are that are that are changed um you know i i i've made my thoughts on twice sort of clear many times but i just i think it is an absolutely batshit crazy movie um and bond is very much a you know that's kind of a cartoon version of himself through throughout it um which i think you know in some of the other films you have a kind of a through line of um uh you know the character because it's being written by the same same person and um and particularly with the when you have films done by the same director you get that same kind of 
flavor coming across so i think you know that's why twice has a has a sort of a strange feel to it i've been thinking that in the long um the long history of bond films the things we're discussing that we like about thunderball for say that that lightness of tone the 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 ability for an actor to breathe and enjoy themselves on set and for that to show on screen kind of kind of is the outlier rather than the norm because you think about uh, John yeah. Glenn, believe, believe it or not, it was all you know, not an not an actor's director, you know, no. had such a heavy hand over the the eighties. Um, mm-hmm. The 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 volcano layers were just dialed up to eleven after uh, mm-hmm. you only live twice. Um, yeah. That everyone wanting to <laughs> outdo the last spectacle that they created, and so that there is really that's the thing that maybe Connery was rebelling against was sort of like lightning in a bottle in the early 60s when budgets were smaller and <laughs> people's people's um, expectations were lower, perhaps. And it would be really interesting to think about what <laughs> could you have sustained, you know, a 50-year franchise making Thunderball and From Russia With Love style films. And if they had been more From Russia With Love and Thunderball style films, would Connery have stayed on and been happier? Well, um, to counter that, Connery could have turned down a bigger budget than Octopussy to do Never Say Never Again, but he didn't, did he? So he took the big paycheck and the big budget, so even here, though he liked the smaller films. So, so here's an interesting quick question, um, and it kind of like bleeds on from what Paul was saying, but um, if, if these films had... If these films had not just ended, if this had just been like Connery's last film, but like the end of the franchise, right? If they'd have ended at, say, Diamonds, like, and you'd never have, you wouldn't have any more films going on, it would be kind of interesting to think about not just bowing out of the series, but, you know, the series is a self contained kind of collection of Connery movies um, and how that would be kind of viewed differently now. Well, we probably wouldn't be here talking about it. No, that's that's right. It would just be Oshon oh, Connery. He was the spy for for seven films, and that was a notch in his long and storied career. Yeah, but you know, you don't you don't get like people kind of going like you get like you get certain bands like uh, the Rolling Stones, right? That that have lineup changes and go on and and continue and do you know what I mean? And and, and then you have the Beatles that break up. And, mm. you know, both equally, I think it's fair to say both equally kind of loved in different ways by different people. But, um, you know, in comparison to having a long franchise that spans, you know, all these decades or just a, a small um, contained amount of uh, media, like, you know, however many Beatles albums or however many Bond movies, um, you know, you could you could view those you could view those two things very very differently. I think I wonder whether we would how we would view if 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 Connery had bowed out and that had been the end of the uh, end of the whole Bond series, how we would view it differently and how we would maybe view those performances differently. But they must have had uh, they must have had talks reasonably early on about what to do should Sean Connery not want to continue on because they signed in for what five seven fil- five six films. Yeah, initially, the, I mean, the, I mean the, the big the big argument from uh, I, I I think it was Saltzman uh, who who basically said that the, the movies are bigger than you know Connery and Star. 
um, and you know all they really needed was a Connery-like person to slot in, um, which probably would move us on to <laughs> our next person. Nice, sort of, <laughs> nice transition nice, there. Nice little segue there. I'm just <laughs> throwing that in. I mean, it's been an hour. Let's not pat ourselves on the back for that transition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be a two-parter, I feel, it coming on. No, no, we're going to race through this one because this one's pretty quick. Because um, I think we'll take on, we'll take George's record of this uh, as gospel, and, uh, you know, for the point of argument, which is he decided not to come back after finished filming, after he finished filming. Yeah. Um, so the difference between George's run and Connery's run is he wrapped up and then decided not to do any more versus Ooh. having that grumbling kind of in his head the whole time he was shooting the movie. Um, if we are to believe his record of events. Um, so my, one of my initial questions is like, did the end of the journey affect the film and could do, do you see it differently? I don't think any of those apply to him. Uh, uh, Similarly with Dalton to some degree. We, we, we do know that there was a lot of issues with Peter Hunt and we do know that, you know, he um, had some issues with some of the, you know, the stalwart cast members as well, um, you know, uh, running yeah but i think if you're the actor if you're lazy at that time you know that hunt's not coming back for another one right <laughs> yeah you, you'd, you'd hope that you didn't you know like ride your horse over one of the principles but um yeah i i, I suppose yeah you don't you don't necessarily have the knowledge in your mind that that's going to be your one and done right you're just going to be you, you, you potentially have a, you know they've already offered you potentially a seven co- movie contract right it's it's there waiting to be signed you just didn't sign it right yeah. And he wasn't making the movie expecting it to be his last one. So kind no. of almost written his <laughs> written his one movie off as it can't really be the start and the end of an era. Like you there's not yeah. much to say about something where it's Although I, I do wonder if he had signed that contract, you know, for seven seven pictures, whether you know, just how well he would have been assimilated into you know, into that the family, so to speak. Um, I made little air quotes there in case anyone uh, didn't see it. <laughs> didn't yeah. Well, um, how many into the seven he would have got before he felt like Connery did? Yeah. So, Natalie, um, as your countryman... <laughs> don't blame me. I don't, I don't want to spoil it because I already know <laughs> kind of probably where you come from this because I listened to your thing on this. Um, your take on uh, Mr. Lazenby? Uh, look, I don't mind him for, for the film he's in, and I think what it, it gives us in the Bond franchise is uh, an an understanding of what it would be like to just do one Bond film. Like how do you take this, you know, superstar character who's known for being played by actors in multiple films and make an impact in one film? And that was not necessarily something that everyone knew at the time, but in hindsight we can go back and look. And I think it's really... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? I think it's really significant that the one film where Bond gets married, you know, finds a woman that he is willing to kind of throw away the rest of his spycraft life for is the one where there's only the, the actor only plays it once because it kind of removes that storyline from the uh, continuity of the of the Bond character in a way. It's sort of like this little sidestep, almost like an alternative universe. I agree totally. That, that they explore with one actor and you get to see Lazenby actually showing genuinely wonderful grief when, when Tracy yeah. is, is murdered at the end. Um, spoilers to any new listeners. Um, 
<laughs> well, there's, there's, Bond, there's Bond fans out there that win prizes that haven't seen Majesties. <laughs> That's so, true. Yeah. yeah. Wait, what? Don't, don't, don't Bond, be bitter. Yeah. Don't be bitter. Bond, <laughs> Bond fans who win prizes. <laughs> Uh, yeah. so there was a competition uh, on recently where the, the top prize, I think, was like a what, was it, a thousand pounds or something like that. Thousand dollars. Thousand dollars. And you had to have seen all the movies. And uh, the person who won won it, but said, "Yeah, I didn't see uh, Majesties because uh, you know I, I thought it would be boring." So, ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, criminal, criminal. Right? Yeah. Unacceptable, unacceptable. Look, it's not one that I um, tend to watch regularly. But I can definitely take it as a, as a wonderful piece of work in its own right. And uh, there's a lot to recommend it. All of that ski chasing and mm-hmm. the pursuit scenes. And you haven't read the, the, the books, but it's also very, very close to, to, to the source material. So I, yeah. yeah, I understand that that's, that's the case, but I haven't read that particular mm. book. I have read some of the books. I just want to point out, not all of them. But uh, <laughs> I, just, I just want to try and increase my cred. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's actually a, lo- a, a sort of a lovely little wonderful artefact of a film that also is probably the most 60s of the film in a way, weirdly enough, I, I, because the – because all of the novels of the of the 60s were based on books that were written in the 50s there's a slight you know the fact that bond says he doesn't like the beatles and you know there's this almost slight um rejection of kind of that countercultural movement that's coming in but it seems to be more present in in the 1969 on her majesty's secret service it seems to have sort of found its way in there somehow just whether it's the fashions or a, a bit more of the, psychedelic, yeah. A yeah, bit, just yeah. that whole montage where he's yeah. out with uh, Tracy and they're kind of having their dating life in a montage. I don't know. There's something uh, in very a singular. Montage. Yeah, exactly. There's something <laughs> oh, very man, singular. If you didn't sing it, I would have. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's something sort of very singular about that that we don't see in any other Bond film. Bond kind of romancing it. It's it's almost a touch. Austin Powersy, dare I say, and they, but and they do like you know little kind of like effects like the uh, you know Bond reminiscing, looking out the window at Regent's Park, and you've got the projection of the uh, avalanche onto the window. Love there's that. Some, mm. Yeah, there's some really nice kind of experimental kind of stuff that they're doing that that kind of never really ever um, raises its head again. Um, so in that sense, it is almost like I, I agree, it's more of a '60s sort of Bond movie. Yeah, and it's it it was it was, I guess, given that they had a new actor, they probably thought, well, look, everything's new. Let's try different things, and then perhaps because Lazenby maybe didn't set the critics alight, because how do you follow Connery? Which you know they even joke about, obviously, in the film. Um, maybe they got scared and went, well, look, let's just go back to the formula, get Connery back, pay him whatever he wants. And that way we can kind of reestablish and then get and, – and I think probably because of having Lazenby is why they ended up with more. I think, yes. I, I think one of the things as well is that you don't, you don't get – if you're not confident in your lead actor in the kind of the way that they weren't confident enough in him, uh, you get a kind of a solo, a Star Wars story kind of vibe. Mm. Where, where you, you know, like there's so much thrown at the screen, but it's kind of like, yeah, but don't look at this guy, really. Don't look too closely about the story that this guy is actually. Yeah, it's Diana Rigg over here. She, we'll put her on the screen while mm. the other guy's talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, but that leads to my controversial take on this question. Oh, oh, oh okay. Because, and Natalie, you might hate this 
as an Australian, but you might love this as a Game of Thrones fans. <laughs> uh, but like we've talked about on this podcast, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, due to Diana Rigg, and when she's on screen, some of us have read it as being like kind of like Diana Rigg's Bond, James Bond film, right? Because she's so yep. dynamic and so charismatic and mm. steals the show, and she is who I want to watch. And I will readily admit that when she's not on screen, I kind of fast forward or I go get a snack. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I find her to be that compelling. So when we talk about sort of this notion of like a one and done Bond film, I always think like this is Diana Riggs' one and done Bond film Ooh. as mm. well, just because mm. she she's that singular uh, in terms of her standing in the world of Bond, her performance, her legacy. And so I feel as though it, it's kind of controversial. I don't want to take away the Australian James Bond, but oh, no, no, it's, no. it's Diana Riggs. And I always sort of like leaning into that. So it's, it's kind of a controversial I, take. I think no, Lisa, I was, the- sorry. I think you're spot on. I and look, I don't. Australians are not so possessive of George Lazenby that we can't, you know, <laughs> appreciate a, appreciate a good call like that one. It is, and and that's you know remiss of me not to credit um, Diana Rigg because I think even George Lazenby said that it it was due to Diana Rigg that he acted as well as he did. Uh-huh. I think uh, so. And, and definitely they brought her in to be the experience and the and the energy, and mm. yeah, it would be nothing without her. And so. In a way, it's great that that exists as her showcase piece, but also sad that there are some people who would miss that because, as you said, that person who won the competition, oh, it might be boring. I mean, to deny yourself Diana Rigg at the height of her, you know, just her her power in all ways, in her beauty, in her dynamism, in her, you know, skill on screen is to deny yourself a real treat. So I agree. I, I agree too. It's one of those films that, um, and I was thinking about just this just the other the day, um, where you kind of almost want to follow the other person's story more than the lead guy's story. Um, and if they made, if there was an alternate universe Bond, you know, like if I could go through the the, the quantum gate and watch, you know, whatever whatever alternate Bonds are out there, the one that just basically had Tracy is as the lead of the movie. Um, and, you know, you kind of just focused on her her story more, I, I think would be a, a fantastic movie to watch. Similarly, I, I, you know, I, I feel the same thing about um, Melina Havelock, even though people don't tend to like her very much. <laughs> oh, no. Let's <laughs> not go there. I, um, I would watch that movie. <clears throat> so at the, in the very beginning, we said, like, is Roger the only one who bowed out on his own terms? I, I'd say Lazenby's in that camp too. I'm- I'll throw a two cents in about uh, why why you should count this in the canon of of uh, bowing out bonds. It, what it has in common with all, almost all of them for now, uh, they're all they were all sort of canonized as misfires or lesser entries or bad, and they've all gotten reassessments. Every every Bond's last hmm. movie has hmm. gotten like in 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 the in the time of my fandom, like people went from calling Peter to kill the worst to like it's my cozy favorite. Diamonds <laughs> gotten a reassessment. Never seen ever again's gotten a reassessment. On Her Majesty's was obvious, like maybe the biggest of these that got sort of just thrown out at the at the by fandom uh, or, or the Gen Pop, I guess, at the beginning, and then reassessed, and now is held in most top ten lists as like a top three entry in mm. terms of fandom. It's a good call. Uh, License to Kill is another. Did I miss one, you I, talking I about Diana yeah. the Day? 
It's time will come. This right. is, yeah, is where this is where I crack my knuckles. All right. Are we talking about another day? All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me know when we're there, but I think that that's uh, that's on, on a, a curve. It's coming. It's going on the best. <laughs> it's, I, as I write in my blog, I think I think um, Die Another Day has one of the best beginnings and most original mm-hmm. yeah, concepts great. and setups of a Bond film. Certainly in the you know last couple of decades, uh, it does fall apart a bit at the end, and there's some a weird bit. gene sequencing thing, and Halle Berry is strange. But uh, <laughs> in terms of its setup, and I will defend that Madonna song until the end of time. So you had me, then you lost me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Don't come for me on the Madonna song. I think it's one of the it's it's probably in my top five of Bond theme songs. It's a decision. <laughs> yeah, and it's a strong one, and that's why some people don't like it. That's how you know. That's how you know art is good is when it in, when it it brings on strong opinions either way. And it's I, memorable. I, it's catchy. Yeah. When I teach mm. it, I will say to my I'll sing it like die another, another day. day. Yeah, and they all just they're like. Stop it. I can't get it out of my head. I'm like, but you remembered the title. I didn't <laughs> it mean did what it was supposed to do. All the way to, to, to uh, browser yet, but uh, James, I, I didn't mean to. No, no, it's good. Uh, we can jump around. We're going rogue. But, um, <laughs> um, doing Roger's one next. I mean, he has, I think, the most straight line journey. Mm. Uh, of his Bond tenure. I mean, yes, he f- flirted with Cubby about not coming back just to get his paycheck increased a couple of times at the end. But, um, but isn't it, isn't it the case that, that he did his last film because they did not think they would be able to get anyone else in who could match Connery coming in in Never Say Never Again? As I understand it, that is uh, one of the reasons that they, they felt that if they got a new Bond to compete with, Connery, yeah, that would be right. a sign that would be kind of yeah. admitting publicly that they didn't think that Moore was How as good as Connery. Want, Roger? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and he was established and he was popular. He was a really, he's still sure. my brother's favorite Bond, my grandmother's favorite Bond. He's still up there for, in people's eyes as, as a he's great still Bond. He's probably the nicest human being. I've, mm-hmm. I've heard that. Yeah. I've heard um, that he was always a gentleman. So uh, I think that. It was a – he might have happily left after uh, Octopussy, although mm-hmm. maybe not happily, maybe grudgingly. I, d- I don't really like Octopussy. Here's the schism. Here it is. I don't oh. like – look, having, <laughs> having done it for the reassessment uh, last year during our pod, it does have its charms that I can appreciate now, but there's just something about – bonding clown makeup which our, yeah. we had a guest on um tom Salinsky, who's a london-based uh writer and podcaster oh, yeah. very very yeah, worth getting on the podcast if you haven't already and he kind of explained the clown sort of makeup to me in a way that i was like actually you know what you make a really good point it's it's a yeah. it's a perfect you're, you're, you're it's getting a, there you just yeah. don't like it's a pussy yet that's all no, it's, it's, a perfect, it's, it's a not that I don't. I like all of the Bond films. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I like all of them. I just have certain favorites. But uh, Octopussy sure. was always, um, Octopussy was always in the same way. A lot of people, I guess, went, "Oh, Her Majesty's Secret Service, boring." I sort of went, "Oh, Octopussy." Uh, but as I say, your opinions change as you grow older and mature and more discerning. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I hated, I hated it for a long, long time, yep. and then I suddenly. 
I really flipped on octopusy. I mean, it was like my literally like dying either day it was down the bottom and then it was octopusy. But then I, I hard flipped on it. And I think I, I, I flipped so hard when I kind of went, it, it's basically the, the two tones of a film, you know, like you've got right. one super Cold War thriller and then you've got this kind of, you know, Kipling-esque kind of. Oh, yes, um, Indian adventure Indian, for boys. Indian <laughs> Jones knockoff. Yeah, and, and it's this kind of, you know, they're always kind of doing these kind of like hybrid movies now. Where it's like, yeah, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a rom-com, but it's got zombies in it. You know, like that's a good point. It, yeah, interesting. It's kind of just like it's it's a it's a blend of genres in a way that shouldn't work, but then it kind of it kind of does. And yeah. it's um, yeah, it's, it's Indiana it's Jones and the uh, Fabergé MacGuffin. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it's just about landing on the frequency, and it takes a while sometimes for some of these to click in that way. Or they wear you down just from repeat watchings because you're watching. <laughs> but I've got to like it somehow. I mean, I definitely yeah. like Octopussy more than I did five, six years ago. Um, it just, it's just something that happens osmosis. You just, you just got really into that. You're really into that Tarzan call. Just yeah. loving it. it. <laughs> I still stand by I that, that case. That I, could, I, could, I could take 60 seconds out of Octopussy and anybody who didn't like it would like it. <laughs> is it like one chunk of 60 or is it like uh, you, you're going through no, it's just little lessons. razor clips just little clips here and there <laughs> yeah I, I think that's true it's it's like I, I feel the same sort of way about Moonraker you know you can you can cut out oh, I don't want Moonraker hour. yeah but if, you cut, but if you cut out like the 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 the, the hover gondola thing and the double take pigeon and no, the smoke you can't take out the double take pigeon pigeon <laughs> yeah, I, just more, more have you made a gif of that, that Natalie? Yeah, um, I think I did actually. I think there's a pigeon, uh, a pigeon gif of the uh, in my recap series somewhere. Good news. Yeah, I'll so have to have a look. So there is an alternate <laughs> universe out there where Moonraker was Roger's last film, and he didn't renew. Right. Yeah. And it would yeah. have been like Die Another Day esque, right? Yeah. On his yeah. on his ending. I, I guess that, that makes about sense. Roger Swan song or bow out, and we've not talked about a view to kill at all in the last five right. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Roger, we're, we're taking up. our time to that last one. We're, we're working up to the ones he could have bowed out on. Right. The only thing that grates for me on View to a Kill is that it just seems engineered for a younger Bond. From the theme song to the plot about right. him fighting an Aryan Superman, uh, it just seems like it, it wants it wants a, a more energetic Bond, and and they retrofit it to to his vibe. I think. If you said to me yeah. it's a film about her fighting an Aryan Superman, I'd be way more excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it I, I think it has that that youthful energy to it, and it definitely is sort of tapping into kind of you know, but certainly with a theme song, and certainly in terms of fashion, um, you know, that grey on grey is definitely a thing um, from the eighties that we all wore. <laughs> Just. Obviously, kidding, um, but I, I think it. I, I, I think it's interesting because when you look at when you look at Moore's performance in Octopussy, and you look at his performance in a, a View to a Kill, like Lisa was saying with Connery, I almost feel that he brings some more youthfulness and some more sort of <laughs> energy yeah. into into it. Well, I think he's more energetic. I think you're, you're, you're mistaking him for his stunt doubles uh, there. Uh. No, I think what happens is it's, you look at the uh, when they all go to the races and he's the fucking youngest one there. 
all of MI6 is there. It looks like the cast of uh, Last of Us. <laughs> okay. That is, that is true. But it's interesting when you look at the script for like, look, like the look at the the, the tone of of uh, Fiora's only right. It's definitely kind of playing the like older agent. He's about to bow out. He's wearing terrible sweaters. You know that kind of thing. And then having a cup of tea in Cube Branch. Yeah, and oh, I don't want to have to. <laughs> um, um, I mean, admittedly, that was it was a child who was saying that too. So that was probably for the best. It was probably for the best, yeah. Um, but um, what, I, what I guess I mean is, like, there is a, a definitely a kind of, like, I am pitched older in this movie than I am pitched in, you know, A View to a Kill. He's definitely, mm-hmm. like, sold as a much more youthful kind of agent, yeah. even though he's substantially older. They did, put a lot of, um, they did put a lot of bronzer and fake tan on Roger Moore, I think, in A View to a Kill. Yeah, right. He's a lot more he orange. He does look a bit surprised as well. <laughs> when Grace Jones fucks him and he doesn't die. It looks close. It looks close, though. His facial expression yeah. in that scene is priceless. I, I, what I thought they should have done with that is um, for every scene after that, every time Bond goes to sit down, he kind of like shifts, yeah, shifts his seat. <laughs> <laughs> But here's the thing. I like an older Bond. I like the fact that we have him for so long. We have this really long tenure. I mm. think the issue Daniel with his- Daniel Craig, per- hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> I think the issue, no. but, but I mean, in terms of number of films as well, like it's a very it long tenure. But I think the issue that I find here and what ages him in people's minds is the casting for Stacey Sutton. After you come out with Maud Adams yes. and, and the connection that they had and, and seeing how that worked so well. And then you shift into this film where you do have, you know, Mayday and Zorin and both of them look young, right? And so there, there could have been a way to, to better match or pair Bond up with somebody who the actor could be closer to his age, but also the character is not going to be presented as being childlike, youthful. This is my childhood bedroom. I never gave away like, you know, the rocking chair that I was raised in. Mm. Yeah. And I think the imagery there is what, I mean, my students are like, Ooh, we don't know how to feel about it because it's coded as being so young. bedroom is so wrong. It's just so pink and frilly and weird. And so there's a way that they could have done it is basically what I'm saying. That yeah. would have not aged him out of – I don't want to say into the creepy zone, but it does come across as being kind of creepy. When he walks into that bedroom, yeah. I'm just surprised he doesn't slowly fucking back out. <laughs> just like, oh, oh, okay. I think you should just take the money from Zorin. Mm. Bye. <laughs> but, but, but is uh... – is Roger Moore making a quiche? Um, the the his his uh, singing on the beach moment, or? <laughs> I think it is the only time we see Back to the kitchen, a, a bond in bond in the kitchen, well, right? No, I think what Paul means is that it's he's returning to the kitchen, whereas where we first found him in Live and Let Die. Oh uh-huh. yeah, no, that's a yeah, turning turning Phil Swickel and and two bottles of wine, um, <laughs> cough like one cup of coffee. To two bottles of wine. That's the that's the bookend. Yeah. 
<laughs> and kitchens um, are often a space where spies, and specifically women spies, so I mean, I'm, I'm going off of like other women, um, can actually showcase their abilities. And so like, how do you utilize like different weaponry and, 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 and how do you use, you know, the, the elements that are present? And so this is sort of like a spy thing. Like I'm, I'm great with, you know, knives and explosives, but I can also put something else together. And that being this delicious quiche that every time Mm. I watch the movie, I want quiche. I'm just like, somebody make me a quiche. It would be great. If they just put that into a lot more dangerous situations, you know, like when they're in Moonraker and they're waiting for like the, the jet to kind of come down on them. And like Drax is like, uh, goodbye, Mr. Bond. And he's like, instead of pulling out C4 out of his watch, he just makes a quiche. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, this is going to be our last meal together. Don't yeah. we? Like, nice, uh, the gourmet nice, option too. Yeah, get a nice caramelization on it. As well. <laughs> <laughs> But do we do we think um, he went into Butica with any different energy level? And I know the jokes about stunt doubles and everything, but I, I yeah. don't see a difference in a drop off in his performance. Like Connery was a bit sleepy in you know twice. I don't see it with Roger in. No, I, 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 as I said earlier, I think he actually consummate professional. Him- brought some renewed energy to it. I, well, I, I think he did. He's probably helped by the fact that his Bond persona was always a bit more languid and always a little bit more. Um, David Niven esque. Yeah, oh, he was. Yeah. He was never the kind of action guy that, say, a Dalton was, or even even Connery. So he was mm. always a bit more of the suave. So being suave when you're thirty five and suave when you're fifty five is probably not much of a difference, really. Mm. Yeah, I'd say that's. I mean, he kind of he kind of lounges through his his movies in a way that you know. Connery he, wish, yeah, wish he his, the, the, the Roger Moore era is the permanently in a hot tub era of James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, think of any of the scenes he's in and, and imagine him in a hot tub and it all makes sense. <laughs> Even when he's, you know, facing down a villain. Even when he's in space, you can Ma- just imagine him in a hot tub. Hot tub in space with a quiche. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's an impro scene ready to go. Yeah, uh, we'll take right. hot tub, space and quiche. <laughs> <laughs> and right, same. <laughs> um, are we gonna? Uh, have we done, Sir Rog? I th- I think so. He left on his own terms, right? Yeah. Um, Dalton. Uh, I, got robbed. Dalton. Got robbed. Yeah, yeah. The, the carpet pulled from under him. Can I, I have a? Can I have a? a, a Lisa, I, I'm, I'm assuming Lisa is a straight woman, which I shouldn't do. Uh, I, I guess for any straight women or gay men on the panel, can I ask mm. if I'm alone in just really falling in love all over again with Timothy Dalton? Um, it, it of the rewatch that I did of the Bond films last year, that was probably the biggest revelation to me was just how much I adore Timothy Dalton. <laughs> As a kid, I never understood why my mum, Dalton was always my mum's favourite Bond, and I never really got it. I was like, oh, he only did uh-huh. two. And she's like, oh, but Natalie, he's so handsome. And I was like, <laughs> okay, whatever. And anyway, re-watching those films last year, I was like, oh, oh I understand, Mother. I understand. <laughs> With the hand oh. over the head, I understand, Mother. Oh, bring me my smelling salts. Um, he is... He's just so magnetic and so, like, he's got all of the good masculinity elements without the sort of the trashy 60s Connery slapping you around kind of ones. He's just, 
Well, he hops he's over just, that era. He, he, he harkens back to like a, a like a Jane Austen type of. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of, you can find many clips of him being Bronte we, heroes yeah, he, or, yeah, on YouTube, and believe me, I've watched all of them on repeat alone at night multiple no, times. I, so I've not been. I've not really <laughs> thought about it, but like now that you're saying this, like he see of, of of the ones we've been through so far, he seems the guy. He seems the bond that is sort of all business, tough as nails bond, but would treat women well and and would care for them and, and you would feel held in his arms. Yes, but not in a but in like a, a strong way, like in a he knows what he's doing kind of way. <laughs> like respect so, but with respect but with uh how's the best way to put this so I don't sound like I'm a bad feminist? Just just kind of like a, a really good masculinity. Like like he smells yeah. really good. Like he smells of toxic masculinity. There's, he smells of like wood chippings and socks <laughs> <Yeah>. and chips. <laughs> like you know I mean, he's quite good in plaid too. Earthy yeah. and earthy I and think he's I think he smells like a good good whiskey and yes. a fireplace. Yes. And um Mahogany. And a yes. Yeah. <laughs> And a, and a, he's, he's what what Sex Panther should smell like. Yes, that's you know what that's exactly it. He's Sex Panther in a bottle, and I I I just uh, am like you say. You know he was robbed, and, and he's the great unknown. I think of of mm. the Bond franchise. He's the what if, and I would can have I, loved to have seen him in the third film. Can I just quickly answer your 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 question, uh, Natalie? Uh, I always found him to be well. No, I I, I should. Re- rephrase that i've never necessarily been attracted to um any of the bond actors um but when i just i was watching um license to kill the other day and we when he wakes up um you know well doesn't really wake up but he's got like uh you know he's pretending that he's getting out of bed like he's been asleep the whole time but he gets out of bed and you know he, he his his physique in that mm. is is just mm pitch perfect for me because like bond is never really described as being like this overtly muscular guy he's in great shape he's got a couple of little these little details that they put in like that they hadn't done with any of the other actors but he's got like some scar tissue on on him yes (laughs) and and i was just like oh shit okay (laughs) and that's what i like like about the bombs too the bombs uh they are the bomb um the 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 bonds is they're never like beefcake you know until daniel craig i guess uh, yeah. they're, they're, they're always just like healthy, strong, but not like, you know, yeah, bodybuilders, yeah. which I, I like, I think in one of the bond books, uh, he goes through his routine, which is kind of just like a morning and evening routine of yeah, essential yeah. sort of strength, full body weight exercises, which is the kind of stuff now they, you, they charge you heaps for to do F45 in a gym or something like that, yeah. you know, <laughs> these kind of functional movements. And that's what bond does to keep fit i believe that exercise regime is uh written down uh on our website by by yours truly i did not do my research but uh yes so it's it's and that that's what i like about him and i think timothy dalton just probably added maybe a, a few bicep curls into that that kind of thing just a little bit a little bit more shape, but I don't want my bonds necessarily to be beefcake. I'm still going to stare at Daniel Craig. I'm 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 a I'm a sexist. I will ogle um, uh, male beefcake, but I like the fact that the historic bonds were, you know, he looks, he looks like a, 
he looks the. He, what was he it? Looks Sorry, the, I missed that. Abe, Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wanky uh, guys with the, you know. Yeah. If you put a picture of George Lazenby next to a picture of Abe Lincoln, twins. Just, I'm just saying, twins. just do it. It's weird. I'm just going to go and Photoshop the top hat onto George Lazenby. Yeah. <laughs> so in Australia, George is known as the Great Emancipator. <laughs> but they're talking about something else. <laughs> I will say I teach a course on uh, gender and James Bond. And so I read film journals. And what I do is my students have to, you know, identify certain elements. And then there's the personal impression section where they can tell me. And I'm like, tell me what you feel. Tell me what you see. But like, tell me for real what you see. You know, don't be like, oh, professor, these. No, I'm like, no, tell me like your actual gut reactions. And I can tell you, I've never really had anybody talk about the attractiveness of Dalton. It's when we get into the Pierce Brosnan phase that that's when you start seeing like the fireworks happening in the personal impression. Like, mm. ooh, now I understand the appeal of James Bond. That usually happens in the Brosnan era. And then the Daniel Craig era, there are others who are like, oh, now I get yeah. <laughs> you know, the, well, the appeal. So. Pierce Brosnan was kind of my Bond in in terms uh-huh. of, as I said, GoldenEye was my first film, and he's he's beautiful as Bond. I think that's the difference. But for for Timothy Dalton and, and Pierce Brosnan, for me, is that Brosnan is like if you if you had to create James Bond out of clay and then touch him and he came to life, it would be Pierce Brosnan. Like Pierce Brosnan in the nineties uh-huh. was just the most beautiful man. Like, and for my particular preferences, I guess. Going back and seeing Dalton, there's there's like there's a more kind of a rough hewn attractiveness to it, and I think maybe it's like as as you age or your preferences change, you kind of you know there's just a little bit more like roughness, a little bit more edge, a little bit more. Whereas Pierce is so kind of perfect, yeah, so manicured. I I find Craig's general charisma. Um, not necessarily his physique, but he has a charisma about him, and many people will disagree with that. But like, I find him a very charismatic mm. guy. I mean, um, I, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, but I, I do. I, I, I find him to be uh, particularly, um, you know, in Casino Royale, particularly, um, you know, some of some of his little throwaway moments of you know throwing the keys and those those kinds of things to be quite a, quite attractive. Whereas, you know, I don't think he's He's not necessarily a good-looking guy, in my opinion, but I do think he has charisma mm. and um, magnetism. Whereas for me, Brosnan was always a very good-looking guy, and that's you know that can't really be disputed. But to me, he always kind of felt a little bit too pretty, and maybe uh, you know a just for men kind of uh, box. Yeah. Model. yeah, he he, yeah. he he doesn't take two bottles into the shower. Yeah. <laughs> So, but, um, you know, I hate to like do the big reelers back in because, you know, God forbid we get criticized for staying on topic too much. Sorry, um, that was that was uh, no. that was my fault. Oh, I no, just, no, no. This is what we do, Natalie. This is what we do. I let my um, rampant heterosexuality out we, of control. We never would have found out about <laughs> quiches and moonrakers otherwise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is Dalton the asterisk on this topic because he didn't decide to leave, although he decided not to come back with two different things? Yeah. yeah the yeah. situation was taken away from everybody. Uh-huh. And he did that second film, although in interviews he does question whether it might be the last film, but that's not him necessarily saying he's finished. Mm. And I don't get any energy from him that he's done in License to Kill at all. 
No, I, and I think from what I've understood of it, he would have loved to have done a third film and they were talking about it because mm. he kind of wanted to combine the successful elements of both Living Daylights and yep. Licence to Kill and kind of make his third movie his Goldfinger, I guess, in mm. in the same way that, that Connery had that. So I, I think it's, a, as I said, a, a what if uh, or a could have been or a should have been sort of moment. At the same time, I do like the fact that it GoldenEye is Pierce's first film. And that sets up a new era, and so it's a, it's a kind of sitting across both yeah. sides of the argument. I wish Dalton had been able to do a film maybe around ninety one, ninety two, um, yeah. and just kind of come out of that uh, Cold War era a bit. But at the same time, that did save it for Pierce to have sexist, misogynist dinosaur and have all that great stuff. So it's a yeah. it's a it's a flip of the coin moment where it would have been great to see another another Dalton film, and, and I think they could have probably nailed it. But would John Glenn have been there again? No. Yeah. Or would they have got a different <laughs> director and sort of thrown in a few extra things that way? So there's so many what-ifs with, with that situation, I think. Yeah, I, I, I will just say that um, I, I sort of tone, like, so in terms of the way that, um, you know, Licence to Kill looks, I, I think it's got that, you know, I think everyone agrees it's got that terrible kind of like, TV quality, made for TV quality about it. <laughs> Miami Vice. <laughs> but the Miami Vice thing, but it also it's just the production values aren't just, you know, it just doesn't look as, as polished and as, as slick as some of its contemporary films. But what I do like about it is I do feel like it is um, a fitting end for his, um, his bond. And although he might not have thought he was going out on it, and I agree with James in that sense, he, he, he probably didn't, and he definitely had the capacity for many more films within him. I think if you are looking at it as a, oh, we're never going to see any more of his films, there is a, there is a kind of a nice, you know, if every single Bond is, is a Bond in a parallel universe, I think this is a nice way to kind of say goodbye to that Bond. And again, even if we never, ever had another Bond film after License to Kill, I think it would have been a nice way to leave leave the character not on a winking fish obviously but um (laughs) but you know just a nice way to kind of go yeah that's that's when he left the service right and that was the end yeah Yeah, something of a dead end this is hard to hard to bounce back from (laughs) he's left the service you know he's found he's found someone to be with um you know he it's the first time you know is he shortly going to get arrested It was it was such a departure for him to, to go rogue at that point. You know, it wasn't every damn film, and and it just was a nice. I think that would have been a nice way to kind of like tie up his, you know, his 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 world, his universe. In a perverse way, I love that there's a Bond that only did two. Like I like that we have Lazenby who only did one, and, yeah. and Connery did five, and uh, you know, uh, Brosnan did four. And, and, you know, uh, it'll be proven true or false, but, you know, there's an argument that Craig should have only done three. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a, uh, I, I like that we get to see uh, the effects of checking out on a, in a different phase on the different actors. You know what I mean? And, That's a good point. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's unique in that way. And in a weird collectible mentality that I have, like, I like that there's a guy that, did a, that only has a duology. So you're waiting for the trilogy, Bond, then? Yeah, still I, waiting yeah, for that guy. I, you know, honestly, mm. after Spectre, I might be the he, next one. Might it. it? Yeah, it probably yeah. should be the next one. Yeah, but I see Nobody's this as done being more like Bond films than Roger Moore. Asterisk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think you know to to push back on Ben and to sort of push off of 
Phil? <laughs> I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> Sounds fun. Um, but like, I don't see license. I don't like license to kill. So I don't see license to kill as being a fitting. And I feel as though there's these two very different like flavors of Dalton films. And then I see a dot, dot, dot. And I kind of like the fact that it, it's left to the dot, 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 because it opens up my imagination to what could potentially be there. Whereas in other cases, we can talk about, you know, not being happy with the role or, you know, yeah, being, yeah, you know, feeling like, like, you, like you've people, concluded it, right? People in 1970 like, oh, I wonder what would happen if Connery came back. Well, let's find out. Yeah, <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of those types of stories. But what makes Dalton singular is the fact that like they were working on it and this could have been like a Moore or a Connery-esque run that he could have gone on, like figuring out after a couple films and then like finding a stride. And we never got there. And it's one of those things where like the what ifs to me are the most attractive part of like the ending. I kind of like the cliffhanger. Yeah. And it's very reminiscent of like our current age. And maybe right. it's just when our favorite <laughs> TV shows get like axed and we're like, what if? Like it yes. opens up space for fan culture and for us to like hypothesize. Mm. You yeah, can also it's be lovely. afraid of sorry. No, that's okay. I was just saying uh, to to back up Lisa, it's lovely to think about an alternate universe full of Timothy Dalton adventures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I was just going to say, you also run the risk of, you know, you're you're sitting there on the dot, 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 and you can imagine a world where that that's a brilliant film that you really adore, but you can also uh, read the treatment for Bond 17 and think, hmm, robots, hmm. <laughs> the- it was a good call not to do it. <laughs> Cowboys. Yeah. Um, so going on to Brosnan, I think I'm going to put it so that I think it's the most acrimonious departure. Yeah, it's sad. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, because um, Sean's not here, uh, so that his last adventure was Everything or Nothing, two thousand three. Mm-hmm. Um, but he must have thought, "Wow, we're going to have a great fifth adventure with all this money we're making." Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And we've got an Oscar-winning actress playing this, so the next one's going to be even better. And it was like, <sighs> nope. Yeah, I I wonder at what point. I mean, I always sort of think that it was. Um, I remember reading about, and I say this on my podcast. I remember reading articles about the making of Die Another Day when it was being made, because they had like previews and stuff, and they were talking to Lee Tamahori about uh, he was overseeing some CGI, going, you know, we've got to bring Bond into the twenty first century and bring in special effects. And I remember thinking, no, I don't know. Do we though? <laughs> I don't know. So. Um, yeah, I'm 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 intrigued by how they how they thought during filming, you know, that this is going to be great or you know, did anyone have any doubts at any point? So yeah. It's the what what if Dalton did a third and what if George stayed on? And these are like debated a lot, but I don't think many people have spent a lot of time thinking about what a Brosnan fifth film would have looked like. Except No. Except true. the the oft mentioned Tarantino adaptation of Casino Royale starring right. right. That was never going to happen, but that's the one people like to speculate about. Yeah. But just, ah. the, just the kind of like, it's like the Fiora's only effects. It's like we're going to roll back the effects. We're going to roll back the scale. Yeah. Right. And what that film would have looked like. Mm. Perhaps we don't speculate too much because well, there's Nobody just cares. nothing to speculate about, right? <laughs> it, would, it was never going to happen, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, and I think the time 
it, it just seemed to be the right time. I think that's the thing. Like maybe Die Another Day wasn't the best, but it did seem to encapsulate an era. So. And it, 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 it sort of feels finished, if that makes sense, whereas, you know, Lazenby feels like an outlier, Dalton feels mm. like a what if, Brosnan kind of felt like, eh, it makes sense to go with someone new now. This might be controversial, but would it would anybody agree that maybe audiences were wrapped up with Brosnan's era before Brosnan was? Oh, mm. uh, yes. Well, I re- <laughs> I know a lot of people kind of a lot of people uh, like to uh, using the Australian phrase. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, you guys would recognise, but hang shit on. Um... Whoa! <laughs> adding, adding that to the repertoire immediately. Yeah. Define, uh, please. It's uh, well to 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 um, take the Mickey out of. I guess it's another way, but to to mock uh, to to people hang shit on the world is not enough, as in they you know talk talk uh, crap about it. They they talk it down. Mm. Uh, to hang mm. to hang shit on something. I just realised that's probably a very Australian phrase. Um, Not more. <laughs> don't. Uh, <laughs> you, you've got to be a lot. Uh, you've got to be a lot more strine when you say it's like, don't hang shit on me, mate. <laughs> um, one of the things I think he gets past, you know, that that status thing is that he has incredible posture. Yes. Um, as as a guy who's already like six foot two or something, um, he increases his height and and his presence. Always, I think. You look at his gun barrel. He is. I was just about to say his gun barrel is the most beautiful balletic. You know, the way he walks is just fantastic. He he has great stature and great posture, and um, you know, I think that's that's often what sells him. You know, that that confrontation between him and uh, Trevelyan in Goldeneye. You know, when when they first meet back up again, and he's just standing so poised oh, um, just with the but, gun out to yeah. one side like almost like a yeah. you know i'm open yeah. shoot me now oh sorry i yeah. need i need a moment <sighs> <sighs> he gets more irish as the film's gone it's funny you say that phil because around the time of bond 20 as it was now known as it was then known before it became done another day there was a lot of press talk from brosnan especially when he's doing his tour of like um Taylor Panama and also Thomas Crown. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. always thinking about how to get Bond to Ireland. In like a lot of interviews, <laughs> he was talking about it. So I think if he'd have stayed on for one more, we would have seen something there because you know that would have been contractual for him was to get Bond to Ireland somehow. Can I jump into that camp because I, I wanted him to stay on as Bond. I don't feel as though Die Another Day is his swan song. I feel as though we see a shift in the tone. We've talked on this podcast. He wanted the films to be a little bit more serious and a little bit more gritty. And he was really pushing that type of tone. And I think we could have had like another, give me a 2004 or a 2003 Bond film. But like they you took say- him like, up and, They took him up on his ideas. They just didn't- They didn't take him. Take him up on his contracts. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I know like I was devastated when he was not recast, and it's one of the reasons why I stepped into Casino Royale and I hated the movie. I was like, you are not Brosnan. This is not Bond. <laughs> I mean, I, I can say I've come to the other side, and I do believe that Casino Royale is a brilliant cinematic piece um, on its own. I think it's just it's a great standalone movie, but I, I love what they did and how they did um, and, and reworking it. So, I mean, I, I'll, I'll sing the praises of Casino Royale now, but in the moment – I was I was a grumpy a grumpy girl about this because I was like no no like you you've ejected 
to me, the person who helped to revitalize and bring us in a golden phase of Bond in the 90s. And I just, I felt like it was, I don't know, I felt like he's been done wrong and for Mm. for no reason. And I still carry that to this day. And it must be really difficult being interviewed all the time about being James Bond when he kind of was like taken away from the role. Like it's hard to be an ambassador and continue to like claim that space and continue to promote a franchise you know, that did that to you. Yeah, I I completely agree with you, Lisa, and I feel we need our own separate spin-off podcast now uh, because <laughs> I, I, I do think that Pierce is now sort of looked back on as this kind of slightly joke of a James Bond, maybe in the way that we used to look back on it at George Lazenby. Um, and I just think that's so unfair because everyone uh-huh. kind of just flipped into the Daniel Craig camp. It's like when, you know, it's like oh. when your, your football team is winning and then all of a sudden right. you're, you're, you get all these new supporters who, no, I've always been a fan. It's, it's like everyone's like, oh, I've always loved Bond now that it's, you know, serious. And it's like, no, don't give me that jip. Don't, don't, think- don't give me that, that, that bollocks. Wait till we get wait, wait till we get Bond seven and about six months for his first film to come out, and I think you'll start seeing Daniel Craig shit talk. Yeah, yeah. maybe and maybe that's just what happens naturally. But I I just think it's really unfair because and 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 maybe Lisa like me like the the nineties Pierce Brosnan Bond is is my formational cinematic bond you know before that it was always just a a tv thing seeing him in the cinema seeing the tank chasing goldeneye seeing the tomorrow never dies and the submarine and you know the the hilo jump and the halo jump hilo jump what you know the one i mean it it, it, it's it's so still to me like excites me when i see those movies and they come on tv and i'm like oh i'm watching this now like let's so let's also yeah i was just gonna say let's not also forget that like he um he did like several really quite good like not good films but like if you look at like november man which was uh, 2014 and he did uh survivor which was 2015 he could have still played bond i think right up until till those those moments and before craig was cast there was there was always people always used to say Brosnan was born to play this part. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and I, you know, and I, I agree. Uh, he was born to play the man. Clearly, he did. But the, I guess, I think that that people just flip in their reactions with these things whenever there's anything kind of new. I don't think in any way um, he was uh, too old to play the part, or that he wasn't. Who wouldn't have been convincing, or any of his kind of like grittier, darker ideas wouldn't have translated. It's clear that they, you know, there was an audience for that. Um, I think there is a universe out there where we, you know, there are potentially some really good um, Brosnan movies that went right the way through to you know twenty twenty fifteen. Yeah, two, you know, two, two so, things but, in response to that though. I think that he's going to get a reassessment the way Roger Moore did. The way Roger Moore was kind of like uh, yeah. people turned their nose at him for a number of years, and now there's a lot. Hopefully, of Hopefully, hopefully, Brosnan doesn't have to die before that happens. Yes. Right? Oh yeah. gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but the other thing is that I think that the pandemic has kind of fucked up that timeline for Craig somewhat because he's currently experiencing the turning. Of his own, uh, on his own thing. Do you think that Daniel Craig wants to hear it, the name Idris Elba one more time in his life? Right. Um, <laughs> all, all of the press mm. about Bond after he said he was going to do another one was okay, but who's going to play him after him? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it's and maybe unprecedented in terms of like uh, the public sentiment sort of being ready for the guy to go out the door. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think also when you consider the way that um, Spectre was written and not that it was a particularly well-written movie, um, but, you, you know, it's the Aston Martin driving off into the sunset. You know, mm-hmm. again, he's he's left the service again. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like it was supposed to be the last minute. In the edit, and- sure. But the script, the script, he literally tells her we have all the time in the world. And that's right. the last lines, which is uh-huh. definitely a cliffhanger for, for another movie. Right. Um, which would have been really oh god i'm glad they didn't do that yeah, yeah but, but craig kind of um just to touch back and and uh, he he kind of sparked a lot of that turning against himself by being like no that's it i'm done after mm. specter he he was quite vocal i thought at the time about being mm. like that that's it for me and then they you know reversed a giant dump truck full of cash up to his door mm. and so it's like well, okay so you're clearly doing this one for the money is that potentially the reason why there's a bit of current you know Turning and and the pandemic, as you say, hasn't helped because we've just had more and more time to think about it. (laughs) His comment, which I think was taken out of context and extrapolated and blown up all over the world, which he never should have said, uh, did not help him at all. People had written him off after that comment. Yeah, I also think he's. Sorry, sorry, so just on that thought, it it set a bad tone for the Spectre before it came out. (laughs) Right. right? Let alone the film after it. (laughs) Don't blame the quote. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the the movie, it did not help at all. Um, Right. But yeah, it was. It was sour. Everything was sour around it because of that. Right. And I think, no, no, no. And I think that that's perfect for what you said, which is where I'm going is I think that he had his, um, you only live twice moment, right? Like just being sort of done with it during the film. Yeah. Like I'm not into this, you know, it it was just. I'm sorry, but Spectre's not a good film. It's not a well-written film. Um, and and he was not happy doing it. And to leave a franchise on that note, um, yes, there's a whole bucket load of money coming in, in in there, but there was also enough time for him to decompress. I agree. So if we compare the potential uh, No Time to Die with the real Die Another Day, um, do you think that this film has the opportunity to be a redemption and like leave us on a on a positive note, we're dying another day, perhaps soured people's memory of the whole of Brosnan's era. Cause I think quite frankly, that was what did it to people, mm-hmm. not golden eye tomorrow of a dies in the world is not enough together mm-hmm. being a bit average, but potentially. Yeah. I mean, cause you, despite the, uh, online cult of quantum solace like the the, <laughs> the Brock, craig's run is pretty split right now and and this is this is the tiebreaker maybe is this yeah it's going to be the one that you know gets him remembered and i do think i've said this before but like i, I had i had occasion to like chat with him on the set of knives out and it was fucking 20 degrees out and it was seven in the morning and it was a scene where he got out of a car and he couldn't have been happier he was just delighted to be working and to be doing what he wanted to do i don't think this is a money grab I think he had some things yeah. he wanted to play with. He had uh-huh. an opportunity to take the the character into probably a new space that we haven't seen them do before, which sort of characterizes his whole run. It's all outlier type stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I think his motives are good. He can't control whether or not the movie's good, but I do think he's showing up for the right reason for this. Uh-huh. And like right. the uh, awkward Spectre fourth act, this podcast is... Uh... Right. <laughs> so I'm going to run down... The ones who have actually finished, and you, you tell me if if you can come up with a better way of summarizing them. So I'm going to go from from newest to oldest. So I'm going to say Brosnan wronged, Dalton victim of circumstance, Moore on his own terms, Lazenby misread history, Con- <laughs> Connery Connery couldn't fucking make his mind up. 
Connery went full choose your own adventure. With his <laughs> that is true. If you and really, as seven, turn to page fifty. Yes, <laughs> that's a great way to look at it. And, and look, to be fair, he was the first. So, how do you be the first person to not only start a character but then to leave that character? You get two goes at it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! It's a terrible thought. He can, he, he, he's got precedent for quitting and coming back, and quitting and coming back. He'll be the first deep fake Bond. We will get a uh, a CGI Sean Connery Bond. It could happen. Wow! His yeah. uncle, Roger his, uh, heirs will sign over his likeness to Bond twenty seven. Gosh, imagine. Imagine them doing like a like a five Bond series like they used to do with Doctor Who, you know, the five Doctors or whatever. <laughs> Just getting like the five Bonds. I'll meet up. <laughs> like Enter the Spider-Verse, but with mm-hmm. with James Bond. Mm. Yeah, it could work. I'd be there for it. I'd still watch it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm there. I think your characterizations were correct, James. The, right. Roger, the Roger Moore one like, gave me pause for thought because we just talked about how it was perhaps an uncharacteristically Roger Moore, Roger Moore, James Bond film, right? That they got the tone wrong in terms of pairing him up with younger people and so on. But perhaps not. On a high? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The off-screen action as opposed to, like, that call. All right. I think we went off some, well, tangents. But, um... <laughs> That's probably my fault. I'm, I'm a big one for tangents. I'm, I apologize. <laughs> oh, no, it's all good. It's what we're known for. No. Oh, good. <laughs> Yay! No, nobody, nobody downloads us to have a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> this is NPR. This is death.